Let's uh, kick into John for today. We, uh, we just finished the section that contains the, uh, the most famous verse in the Bible, John three sixteen. And today we're actually looking at the last appearance of John the Baptist in the Gospel of John. And in fact, we hear John the Baptist's last words in the Gospel of John today. John the Baptist is the one that was sent to prepare the way for Jesus. That's what John chapter 1, verse 6 says. So without further delay, let's just read the text. Uh, it's a great story that we're covering today. So if you'd like to open up to John chapter 3, we're going to start at verse 22. John chapter 3, verse 22. If you're wondering what version we use here, we use the English Standard Version. Um, or you can just translate as you go uh, from another one. Uh, John 3, starting at verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside. And he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salem because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized. For John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. It's pretty unclear what the nature of this discussion was. It was a discussion obviously about purification, but we don't really know what it is. And interestingly, as soon as they show up to John the Baptist to talk with him about it, they drop it. Um, So verse 25 again. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi... He who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. Interesting statement, isn't it? Now, John's response is sublime. And uh, I just want to actually put it on the screen. You can read it on the screen because I've got a couple of explanatory notes as we look at John's response. John answered, a person... And John means himself, Jesus, and pretty much everyone cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride, John the Baptist is talking about the church, is the bridegroom. The bridegroom is Jesus. The friend of the bridegroom, John the Baptist, who stands and hears him, Rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. That would be Jesus. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He, Jesus, must increase, but I, John the Baptist, must decrease. All right, let's kick in. The first thing we see really obviously in this passage is there's a bit of a Jesus versus John mentality that's actually going on here. This is the statement that the uh, disciples of John the Baptist said to him. Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are going to him. You know, when I came to this passage earlier this week, I said, oh man, like this is like T-ball, right? You know, some people say that um, the stuff in the Bible is hard to understand. How does it apply in our day? Well, some passages are actually pretty tricky when it comes to that. This one, not so much. This one is really, really straightforward you know there there are some things that just never change right and and one of those things is human nature isn't it Um, the biblical description of human nature is timeless it always works the historical context may change but the way that people operate looks the same and it and, and it is just the same and this story is just so 
vivid for me when I read it. I just you can imagine it, right? The, the John the Baptist disciples are over here and they're having this bit of a debate about purification. And, and they, uh, they go, oh, look, what we need to do is we just need to talk to John about it. Let's just go to John because he'll, he'll be able to sort this out for us. So they come along with this question that they're wanting to ask and this clarification they want. And then all of a sudden it doesn't matter anymore because they're going, what the? What's going on here? You know, before Jesus came on the scene, John the Baptist is the main man. He just is. And they show up and everyone's going to Jesus. I mean, what, this was the man, John the Baptist, who, who Jesus actually said he was the greatest person that's ever been born of a woman. And now they're all deserting him. You know, if it was our day, it'd be this. They'd say, Jesus is getting more likes than you. Wouldn't they? It's a market share issue. And his disciples, John's disciples, come together and they go to talk to John. And, and then it's like, do, do we need to get the marketing team together? Because that guy's winning more people than you. Maybe we need some solicitors. There's a bit of a demarcation dispute going on here. John, how do we get people to centre back on you? You're losing your influence, buddy. Can you see it? Now, the comment looks innocent enough, but there's a real trap in it. His own disciples may not have noticed what was going on, but John's disciples had actually baited a hook for John. Do you see this? They baited a hook for him. It seems innocent enough. comes with the cloak of loyalty after all, doesn't it? But it's, it's dead wrong. And do you see the risk here? There's a massive, massive risk here. If John the Baptist takes the bait, everything is going to get messed up. His witness... The way he's been preparing the way for Jesus, all of it's going to get tarnished. And I think what's actually going on here, whether John's disciples understand this or not, is they're actually appealing to a part of John the Baptist's nature that is fallen. And it's not just John the Baptist, it's all of us. Because there's this sense in all of us, there's this side of all of us that we actually want to be independently great. The temptation to be independently great is almost irresistible. You go back, right back, to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. What do you find? You find the devil, the serpent, saying, God's just told you not to eat of that tree because he doesn't want you to be like him. You could be like him. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like him, knowing good and evil. You can be great. And you can be great on your own. You don't need anyone else. Now, we have the tall poppy syndrome in our culture. Has anyone noticed? It's there. And it squashes this desire to be great, but it doesn't squash it completely. Because we have inside of us this desire to do things alone. We desire to handle things ourselves. We desire to be independent. We desire to be independently great in our own way you see this is the essence of what pride is pride is about being someone in our own right without reference to anyone or anything else now we can understand this dynamic 
And, and I trust if you look at these verses in John chapter 3 today, you, uh, you look at it and you go, oh, I, I think I felt the same thing sometimes. I felt this desire to actually be someone in my own right without reference to anyone else. But I tell you something, it doesn't work. It never works. It might seem like it works for a little while, but in an ultimate sense, it doesn't. And the reason why it never works for you to be independently someone is because you were never made to operate like that. So if you look in your life and you go, every single time I try to do something on my own, it gets messed. That's what's going on. You just weren't made to operate like that. You were made to be in connection to Jesus, not in a disconnected state from Jesus. You were never, ever made to operate independently on your own. And when you do, you never run the way that God designed you to run. Let me put it a different way. Imagine you had this Bosch dishwasher. You get up in the morning, a bit doughy, you got a bed head, and you walk into the kitchen and it starts talking to you. All right, granted this is weird, but it's early morning and you're doughy, so it doesn't strike you as too weird or too much out of the box. Besides, you know the story about Balaam in the Old Testament where a donkey talks to him and he doesn't skip a beat and having a conversation, so you just go with it. Your dishwasher says to you, says this, I am done with needing water and power. I'm done. It's so pathetic being dependent upon water and power. I want to be everything that I can be. So I'm going to disconnect from the power and the water. And you begin to say, but it won't. The lights go out. The hose disconnects. End of the conversation. What's the problem? Aside from the fact that you're talking to your dishwasher. The problem is that it was never made to be everything that it was supposed to be in an independent way. It was never made to be a dishwasher by being disconnected from power and water. The way that it actually is to be fully who it is, is by being connected to the power and the water, by being dependent. In some ways you could lovingly say to your dishwasher, Seriously, if some of you come back and you've started talking to your dishwashers, I'll pray for you, all right? But this is just an illustration. You could say, don't be an idiot. That won't work. Disconnecting only makes you less of who you are, not more. And I want you to hear that this morning, that that is exactly how it works for humanity. I want you to hear this and sit on it, soak on it, chew on it. Ruminate on it, reflect on it. Independence only makes you less of who God made you to be, not more. Do you hear that? Well, that's Jesus versus John. Second bit. You, be you. Have a look at verse 27 and 28 of uh, John 3 there. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. Now, this is critical. 
John shuts his disciples down really, really quickly. And the reason why he's able to do that is because John is clear about who he is and he's clear about who Jesus is. He's not confused about those two categories. And don't miss the importance of this. Have a look at verse 27. Verse 27, John says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. This statement reminds me of something that my, one of my kids used to come home and say that they learned from the kindy that they went to. You get what you get. You don't get upset. See? People know. You get what you get and you don't get upset. Here's the reality. Who you are and what has been prepared for you to do is given to you by God. And you need to live into it. John got his job from God. Jesus got his job from God. You get your job from God. But here's the frustrating thing. We find ourselves sometimes trying to be someone else. (laughs) Trying to do someone else's job. It's like, I like their job better than my job. And I just say to you, stop doing that. (laughs) Just do your job. You're going to be an ace at it. You're going to be an ace at it. Have you ever wanted someone else's job? Ever wanted someone else's testimony? Ever wanted someone else's prosperity? Ever wanted someone else's fame or notoriety? Ever valued what someone else does more than you do and then tried to do their job? Our society pushes us in this way a fair bit, right? Because they connect what you do with your value and who you are. So society kind of tells you, here's a role or an activity that's really, really valuable and really important and you can't be fully you and an important person unless you actually go and do that job. The subtext is you become someone by what you do. Well, truth is, God gives everything to everyone. And so what you do doesn't actually say anything, ultimately, about your value or your significance. It's a job that you get given by God. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? You know, what's your job? What's my job? Well, the job that God gives us to do. And we should just do it. And who knows that when you break out of the job that God's given you to do, it never works. Have you noticed that? You try and do something else or you try and gain some skill over here that's not the one that God's given you because you think you're going to get some kudos by it. You just aren't good at doing anyone else's job. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? You just know. I mean, I've tried it. It's like, oh, that looks cool. That looks like you get some kudos. That looks like it makes you an important person. So I'll go and try and do that. This is good news for you, right? I hope it, I hope it sounds like good news. I get jobs to do from Jesus and you should just enjoy doing that. But what John's saying here, actually, it gets even stronger than just that. It's not even just that everyone's got their own job to do, but John makes it really clear that he knows he's not the hero. Look at the second half of John's response in verse 28. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I'm not the Christ, but I've been sent before him. 
What's the word Christ mean? Well, it actually means the anointed one. It's another word for the Messiah. For the Jews, the, the word Messiah was another word for hero. The Messiah was the one that, that they were always waiting for, the one who was going to come and reverse the curse. John knew who Jesus was and he knew who he was. He wasn't confused about it and he knew he wasn't the hero of the story. I want to say something really, it's, it's meant to be really liberating for you. You're not the hero either. In God's story, the hero's already sorted out. It's not like God stuck a sign out and he's running auditions. You know, is there someone, someone please, some human somewhere who can come and be a hero in my story? There are no auditions for the hero role. It is already filled by Jesus. And I want to say to you that if you, and this is a struggle that we all have, it's a struggle that started back at the fall of humanity in Genesis 3. If we discard God's story and we want to have our own story and be the hero in it, that's going to be detrimental to you living out the life that you've been made to live out. Any lack of clarity between who Jesus is and who you are is going to be a problem. It's going to be confusing because you're not the hero. And aside from that, if you want to be the hero, look out. There is so much stuff that you need to be across, so much stuff that you need to know, so much stuff you need to control. Welcome to a stressful life. <laughs> Welcome to a stressful life. You know, one of the things that we get taught in our culture is uh, that we decide who we're going to be. That's not true. The task of growing up is to discover who God made us to be. That's what the task of growing up is. Well, how do you do that? Well, you do it in community. We learn about who we are in relation to God and in relation to one another. And just side note, quick plug, this is what Restoration Groups is all about. Um, the book that I've written that we're using in Restoration Groups for the first time at the moment is called Becoming You, Becoming the Person God Made You to Be. We're going to run it again in the first quarter of next year and you should sign up. All right? God's up to some really, really good things. Because here's the bottom line. If you want to flourish, then you need to be clear about who you are and who Jesus is. All right? Get really clear about that. And you're not going to be able to do that on your own. You're going to need Jesus to help with that and you're going to need other people to help with that. One final caveat before I move on to my final point this morning. For some of you, by me actually saying this, it encourages a lame approach to life. A fatalistic kind of approach, you know, okay, sarah, sarah, whatever will be, will be. And if that's you, then I've got a word for you. You will never be the person that God has made you to be by sitting back. That's not how it works. You know, fear and guilt and shame would love to have their way and make you passive. And I want to say to you that the task of discovering who God made you to be is not a passive task. It's something you have to be actively engaged in. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's what Psalm 139 says. But you have to live into it. 
It doesn't just come to you. You don't just lie in a recliner chair and all of a sudden who you are just comes to you and it's going, bam, all of a sudden it's like, this is amazing. You have to get after it. Let, you, let me tell you three things I thought I'd never do. And two out of the three I said it publicly that I wouldn't do. One of them is plant a church. Nathan Gilmore came to me years before the project started. He said, you should plant a church. I think you're a church planner. I said, I'm not a church planner. I said, I'm not planting a church. Here we are 10 years later. If you'd have come up to me and said that a guy who did the lowest level of English got 64% in year 12 would do a doctorate, I would have laughed at you. And I thought underneath, I thought, that's crazy. And then if you just took the next step and you said, oh, this same guy is actually going to write a book one day that's going to be helpful to people, I would laugh again. I just go, that's, that's not going to happen. But do you know what? Each step of the way, God called me and, and I, I followed him. And in each of those things, especially uh, when I studied my doctorate and, uh, and writing the book that I've, I've just finished, I battled the thoughts that you're not smart enough to do this. You can't do it. This is beyond you. The whole way. I, I, I had sitting on my desk just in the offices over there when we are over there. Um, and you might go, well, Pete, that's a bit pessimistic. But here's the truth. I had sitting on my desk the first part of a section out of Jeremiah, for I know the plans I have for you. Now, I didn't write anything more on that bit of paper than that. And I, do you know I wrote that at a time when I thought I was going to fail the early stages of my doctorate. And I said to the Lord, I said, I know that I'm meant to be here and I know I'm meant to be doing this. Even if I fail, I know that you've got a purpose in it. And so I had that phrase sitting on my desk for about four out of the five or six years when I studied my doctorate. Trusted him with it and discovered a part of me I, I didn't think was there. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that you're going to do the same things as me. You, you're probably not. That, that's been my job to do. But what's your job? Don't be passive about it. Don't look at what you are now. Follow God and live into the person he's made you to be. Seriously, this church is going to be rocking if you people do that, won't it? Can you think about, can you even begin to imagine about how much... That's going to impact the uh, Toowoomba society. 200 people who know who they are, they know who Jesus is, they're not confused and trying to be the hero, but they're going after him and living into the person he's made them to be. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. Jesus versus John was where we started. You be you. And here's uh, where I want to finish this morning. Uh, A friend of Jesus. Have a look at verse 29 to 30. John continues, The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. A friend of the bridegroom, he stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, 
Let's just roll with John's marriage metaphor for a bit. If you went to a wedding reception, right, and you saw one of the bridal party of each gender in each other's arms kissing, you would assume, unless you went to Samson's wedding, that they were the husband and the wife. True? That, that's what it is. Like you go to a reception, it's like, oh, okay. So that's the bridegroom. And the brides of the bridegroom used to go, like if someone came to you and said, seriously, is that not the weirdest thing that you've ever seen, that the brides of the bridegroom used to go, what, are you, what have you been drinking? You know, wouldn't you? You just go, what is your problem, man? Like seriously, this is how it works. The bride and the bridegroom go together. The bride is connected to the bridegroom. It's not the best man. Like if you get to the reception and the best man's with the bride and he's got her in his arms, you've got massive problems, all right? Massive problems, they go together. It's the same with the crowds and Jesus. In the New Testament, the bridegroom is Jesus and the bride is the church. They belong together. What does it make John the Baptist? Well, he's the best man. The friend who attends the bridegroom. You know, back in the day, the friend who attends the bridegroom was a very important person. They're responsible for the details of the wedding. It was he who brought the bride to the bridegroom. But you know something? After he'd done that, his job's over. What does John the Baptist do? Hear this. He stands up, he does his job, and he sits down. That's what he does. He stands up, does his job, and then he sits down. And that's how it's meant to work. That's how it's meant to work for us. I'd say this to you. Stand up, do the job that God's called you to do, he's given you to do, and then sit down. (laughs) Sit down. Don't keep standing up trying to draw attention to yourself. Do your bit and sit down. Now, here's, here's the really, really good news. There is a mystery bound up in this. And it's the mystery of joy. It's the mystery of joy. See, we think that we will only be happy when we're the main one or the most important one. You know, and I think, I actually think part of the reason for this is we, we fear oblivion. We fear obscurity. We fear physical death. I remember reading a, um, a book years ago. It was just a light one, uh, uh, Sin, Radical, Evil in Soul and Society. And um, I jest. Uh, it was written by Ted Peters. And he had a whole chapter in the book, I found it a fascinating chapter to read. He's a Lutheran from the States. Uh, a whole chapter about how the fear of death, both physical and personal kind of death, this obscurity thing, just stalks us. And it isn't, it isn't just the fear of physical death. It's the fear that people would walk past us and treat us as nothing. That would be swallowed up personally. But here's, here's what I want to cash out for you. Um, if, if we think about it this, the following way, it's, I don't think it's helpful. If you've got on one end, we are absolutely nothing, then normally what, what, the way that we operate with this stuff is 
is pretty binary. It's either we're nothing or we're great. <laughs> and it's either one or the other. And that's the way that we actually think about it. It's, it's nothing or we're great. It's pretty binary. But I think there is something in between nothing and great. <laughs> and I think you see it with John here. You know, in a sense, and this is, you know, metaphors say some things really well, but they don't explain everything, right? So what you see with John's metaphor is he's kind of going, um, I'm not the bride, sorry, I'm not the bridegroom. He kind of is part of the bride, right? He's part of the church. But let me stick something in between nothing and great. And you know what that is? Uh, Friend. Friend. You could be a friend of someone great. <laughs> Wouldn't that be good? Someone who is close to the bridegroom and helps the bride and the bridegroom get together. He's not the hero and he's not nothing. He's a friend of the hero. He's a friend of the one who is great. This is what John is saying to his disciples. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. I want you to hear me as I say this. If you want to be happy, if you want deep-seated joy, you will never get what you truly want by trying to be great on your own. You won't get it. Some of you probably don't believe me. A lot of you do. You've tried it and you know that it doesn't work. And maybe even on the inside you're going, Pete, can you just help me? Help me to find the joy and the happiness that I so deeply want. Well... It comes from looking away from yourself. The secret to your joy is found in the last words of John the Baptist in the Gospel of John. He must increase, I must decrease. John the Baptist is not talking about oblivion. Don't mistake this for a disappearing act. This is about people being the right size. Jesus' growth in significance in your life will lead to you becoming your true self. Do you hear me? Jesus' growth in significance in your life will lead to you becoming your true self. If he lessens... You'll drift further away from your true self. This is how it was in the very beginning. You go back to Genesis 1.26. It says that God made humanity in his image. We are hardwired to God. When, When Jesus takes the place in your heart that he ought to have, you will become you. That's a weird kind of brain snapping thing right where you just go okay so now you're telling me Pete that becoming you is more about who Jesus is than about who you are 
I said, yes. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. So the, it begs the question, right? Um, are you into Jesus? Or are you into you? Being into Jesus will bring great joy. You can see that with John. Being into you will probably get your anxiety, frustration, selfishness, a mixture of sadness and happiness. Move on a little bit further uh, in the Gospel of John to John chapter 6. And there's this amazing story at the beginning of John chapter 6. And it's the story of the feeding of the 5,000. You probably know it really well. Um, uh, Jesus and his disciples go up onto a mountain and then this big crowd comes. 5,000 men plus everyone else who were there. And Jesus asked the question, how are we going to feed all these people? The disciples don't know. They find some little boy. He's got his lunch with him. It's a cheap lunch, some barley loaves and a little fish. And Jesus takes it, uh, gives it to the disciples and everyone gets fed. And I wonder, <laughs> if you're able to choose which character you would want to be in that story, I wonder who you would pick. You've got four options. Jesus, you're not meant to pick him, all right? But you might want to be him. You could be the disciples. That would be cool, right? Because they get to do it. They, get to, they have a miracle happening in their hands. You could be the crowd. People who get to eat this miracle, that would have been amazing. Or you could be the boy. I wonder which one you'd pick. Do you know which one I'll pick? The boy. I'd pick the boy. Now, think about the boy. I've, I've thought about the boy. He, he never shows up in the early church as far as we know. He doesn't have a church named after him. His name is not on a plaque in some Presbyterian church somewhere, Uniting Church. We don't hear from him again. And he turns up, he's got this cheap, small lunch. As far as he knows, I mean, Jesus could have eaten it. Would have been disappointing, right? So, hey, hey. He shows up and he hands his stuff over and then no one ever hears from him again. You know, um... There's a mysterious blessing in insignificance, isn't there? Seriously, who would want to be the hero anyway? Who wants all that pressure? Who wants all that responsibility? You know, God has very significant things for us to do. And we are very significant to him. But there is a blessing in not feeling the pressure that you have to be significant in this world. We finish on a really um, forward-thinking note. Ephesians 2 verse 10 says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
So let me ask you um, a few questions just to finish. What are you supposed to be doing? And perhaps a follow-up question to that would be, are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? Now, this is the great hidden blessing of the pandemic, right? And, and you've seen it. You've seen it at the church here. Is you've seen big pieces moving around because people's staff have kind of said, you know what, love the place, but this is just not the place I want to be in. You've heard leaders in the church do the same thing. You've seen leaders come in. You've seen people go, yeah, you know what, the job that I'm doing is not the one that I think I'm supposed to be doing right now. God wants me to do this other thing. And I'm not, please don't hear me for a second just saying that it's, it's only kind of work in the church that matters. I'm not saying that at all, at all. And God needs his people to excel in every area of culture, every area. Great teachers, great pilots, great bookkeepers. Great retail assistants. What are you supposed to be doing? And are you doing what you're supposed to be doing? And I, I mean, talk to people about this, right? Don't just kind of run off and have a knee-jerk thing. It's like Peter told me to do it, right? But if, if you're honestly looking at it, you just go, I'm not really sure I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Start having conversations with people around the place. Ask the people closest to you. If you're in a community group, ask people in your community group. Start making some plans to test out where God might actually want you to be. Second, second question or category of questions. Can you see in your life where you're trying to be Jesus? Where there just isn't a clear line between who Jesus is and who you are. You're kind of trying. I mean, that's the ultimate thing, isn't it? And the truth is that we all do it. It's like, it's not only that sometimes we want to do someone else's job. Sometimes we want to do Jesus's job. Third section of question, questions. Where are you unclear about what God is wanting you to do? Don't, don't just think of things like, oh, the famous thing, the big thing, the really significant thing. God might want you, the good works he has for you right now, he might want you to be sweeping the floor at McDonald's. And you know what I reckon you should do if that's the case? You should be the best floor sweeper at McDonald's that I've ever had. If he's called you to preach... Get up and be a good preacher. If he's called you to be a teacher, get up in front of your class and be a really good teacher. If he's called you to be a tradie, be a really good tradie and look after people really way, really well in the way that you do your job. You get, you get my point? All right, I'm done. 
But I, uh, I have been thinking this week that maybe there's some of you that would like some prayer for that. Maybe God's been sleeping around a little bit in your heart and maybe leading you in some directions that you haven't been, that you kind of put on the back burner for a while. Or, um, I don't know, maybe you just want to say sorry to Jesus for trying to do his job, trying to be the hero. We should just lock in the stuff that God's doing in us. Get someone to pray for you. So if you're, um, if you're questioning, if you're wondering uh, where you're supposed to be, or even today you're just going, yeah, you know what, I just need to, just need to get back on track with Jesus being the hero and not me. Let's ink it in. If God's up to something, let's ink it in.